Thank you, Bob. If you would take your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty, and it's great to be worshiping with all of you on this incredibly unique day. You think of the opportunity that lays before us in the next 14 hours or so, the opportunity to end, no, that's not how long it'll take to preach the sermon, (laughs) but the opportunity to end a year well, and an opportunity to begin a new year, thinking thoughtfully, how will I prepare, how will I plan and do next year in my growth in Christ? Uh, There are goals that you may have as an individual, as a family, uh, what we hope to make and do next year. Uh, But I do pray that today, if you haven't already, take some opportunity to think through what is it that I want to be uh, growing in next year? What uh, areas of my life do I believe that God is calling me to grow in, uh, especially uh, in the next year, uh, next 12 months to come? And being able to even put a small plan into place uh, today, uh, prior to the new year starting tomorrow, and then starting off strong on a Monday morning, uh, up reading God's Word either in the morning or in the afternoon, evening, when the time is uh, best and suits you uh, to read well and to understand, comprehend what you can of God and His Word. Uh, May the Lord bless you as you begin uh, this next year growing in grace, growing uh, together as a family and as a church, we pray. Philippians chapter 4, if you would stand with me, we're going to read verses 4 through 7 this morning and look at these for our time together. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you know this next line, say it with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I like to be close to a flashlight when I go out in the dark. Am I afraid of the dark? Maybe so, but I'm not afraid to admit it. But I want to know what's out there with me in the dark, and I'm okay if somebody next to me has one, but I really do prefer the control over the light. I want to be able to move it where I hear something. I want to be able to shine it down where my steps are. Uh, And being able to be close if in the dark, and I'm somewhere I'm not exactly familiar with, my confidence grows more and more when I'm closer to a flashlight. But I have a suspicion that I'm not the only one who also enjoys the proximity to a flashlight or a torch if you're from the UK. I'm not the only one. This is why every smartphone has a flashlight on it. It's one of the most accessible applications on your phone. It is on my home screen or the lock screen. I don't have to do much. I don't have to open the phone. It just, it's right there already for me. There are keychains with flashlights on them. Flashlights to clip onto your hat. You can wear them on your head. There was even flashlight gloves 
Flashlights that can double as a weapon. Night lights, glow sticks, all with the same purpose to illuminate our path and give us confidence in the dark. The light allows you to see what otherwise you could not see with just your eyes. And because of this, it gives you confidence in searching for something or walking around in a place that may be unfamiliar or a place where there's limited light. Just think about walking in the dark, in an unfamiliar woods, outside, and your flashlight dies. Some of you, your palms are already sweating, just thinking about the idea of it. This is why I like flashlights that have actual batteries. So I'm not wondering, when was the last time I charged this thing? Is it going to make it for the whole time that I'm out here? Did one of my kids use it? Did I leave it on in the drawer? I bring extra batteries for a headlamp or a flashlight. I don't want to be left in the dark. This isn't a new concept to us. We have thousands of lights to choose from. But the idea of needing light to illuminate our path in the dark is as old as humanity. Campfires, torches, candlesticks, lamps. The psalmist states in Psalm 119, in a metaphor, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The idea of lighting our path to see where we walk is so common that the biblical author can draw from that picture, that idea of a fear of walking in the dark, of not knowing where we're going, and insert it right there in a metaphor of our lifetime and of looking at God's word to illuminate our path, to seek after God's wisdom to give direction when walking in the midst of darkness or in the midst of this life. And while the flashlight can only illuminate the area in front of you, the Bible can open your eyes to who God is, how you ought to live the rest of your life, even what will happen when you die or Jesus returns. This morning, as we look more closely at the text, the few verses that we just read, Paul points us to find our confidence, not in a flashlight and not just in God's word, but in the presence of God himself, who is always with us. A confidence that doesn't need a recharge or batteries to make it. A confidence in a person, not just in an object. No matter what circumstances may come, no matter the situation, we as God's people can experience peace and protection because of the presence of God. Or said another way, the proximity of the Lord brings peace and protection. The proximity of the Lord brings peace and protection. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Do you long to be at peace with God and with others? Do you wish that you could be confident in your relationship with God? Maybe that's how you would like 2024 to go, more than maybe 2023 was. Would you give anything to not struggle as much with worry and anxiety? Is your heart and your thoughts always seeming to find the dark corners and the sinful ideas or habits that you wish you could overcome? Paul addresses these things as he gives in the verses we just read aloud some general commands to the church in Philippi. If you remember several weeks ago, he just spent the two verses prior seeking to help two ladies in specific there at the church, seeking to help them who are at odds with one another to restore a relationship, to be united. And he calls on the church to help them. He says in verses two and three of Philippians chapter four, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And immediately, after that commendation to these two women and to the church to agree in the Lord and to help these women agree, he moves to verse four that we read this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And why these might be, while these might be closing comments from Paul to the church, we also would assume, and if you can read in um, several of your versions, the English versions of the Greek New Testament, you're seeing that there's not always a paragraph break. But these are connected directly to the situation at hand with the church. And so while we can make some application to relational aspects here that Paul might be addressing as well, we also can see some general commands for us as God's people, imperatives that Paul writes to the church. There's no doubt the comments here flow from the situation with Euodia and Syntyche, but are also meant to be applied to everyone, not just to those two ladies and the particular situation that's going on. Sometimes we can miss the point or instructions if we think someone is talking to another person. I don't need to listen. I can tune it out. You're addressing my sibling or my spouse. But Paul is talking to the whole church and to us as God's people. And so we heed these commands. A few comments. There are five imperatives, five commands that are given in these few verses. Five. Two are seen right at the beginning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice, I say again. Rejoice. The command to rejoice. The command to be reasonable or gentle. Uh, The command to not be anxious. And the command to make your requests known to the Lord. Five commands. Five ways we need to obey. Someone once said, God's word is saying to us, if we want to enjoy God's promises, then we must obey his commands. Here's five. His word is a lamp unto our feet, a way to guide us a law for our own good. It leads us in the way of wholeness, of flourishing, and of peace, both now and forever. God is telling us how we ought to obey him. Five commands given in these few verses. However, while God does give us commands to obey, and honestly, we should expect nothing less from our king, from our master and our Lord. The beauty is that he does not leave us alone to figure it out. Remember what I said at the beginning, the proximity of the Lord brings peace and protection. He does not leave us to rely on our own strength and our own ability alone. Not at all. Because just as, and this is not true everywhere in scripture, but we see it clearly here in this text, Just as there are five commands here for us to obey, Paul also repeats the name of the Lord five times to emphasize the message that God is near to us, that he is with us, that we are not alone to face this world by ourselves, that he is right here and he is coming again. Just as striking as five commands in a few verses is five times the name of the Lord is mentioned in these verses as well. So let's look at the commands that Paul writes to the church and then the promises together to see how the proximity of the Lord brings peace and protection. The first one this morning is the one that is duplicated for us. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I command you to rejoice twice. 
He gives the same command twice. Parents, you find yourselves giving the same command a thousand times a day. Now, we do it for repetition's sake, right? The command continues to be broken, or it seems as though the person didn't hear what we were saying. So sometimes we say it twice, and sometimes the second time is a little bit louder than the first time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Either he really wants to make sure we get this one, or he knows that it's hard to do. To find your joy in the Lord always. And we have an example of this in the person of Paul himself in Acts chapter 16. If you're familiar with the story, this is where we see the planting of the church in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, Paul comes to Philippi because the Holy Spirit continued to stop his way throughout and leading him to Macedonia and ultimately comes to Philippi. And when he's there, all of a sudden, all things are not just rosy and easy for him, but he ends up finding himself because they cast a demon out of a slave girl That slave girl's owners didn't like what they had done because now their profit margin is zero. She was able to tell the future for people, but now she's unable to do so. They're really ticked off. They have Paul and Silas thrown into prison, beaten, thrown into the innermost prison, and now all of a sudden Paul finds himself in this prison, beaten, no doubt, bloodied and bruised and hurting. But at midnight, What's given to us in Acts chapter 16 is that Paul and Silas, instead of found bemoaning their situation, really arguing with each other, fighting the other prisoners, trying to devise a way to escape or anything else, they're praising the Lord and they're singing hymns and they're finding in the midst of this opportunity a great time to worship. No doubt it's not easy to do, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy to slap a smile on your face and be able to walk around cheerful. The way in which we rejoice is not what's commanded, but the cause of rejoicing. We rejoice in the Lord, not when circumstances always go our way, but always. Rejoicing in the Lord always, we see is also in the life of Jesus himself, don't we? One who goes to the uttermost, to all the way willing to go to the garden, and there is praying, God, if there's any other way that we can go through this, I'm, I'm willing to do that, but I, I'm willing to drink the cup of your wrath that you are going to have me drink. I'm willing to go to the cross for these sinners. I think there's an act of rejoicing, of submission that says, I will do what you have called me to do. And rejoicing there doesn't look like smiley, happy face but weeping, sorrow over sins of other people, over what it's going to cost, a rejoicing in all things in the Lord. And surely for us as God's people who have experienced the redemption that God has provided to us, knowing full well, more than anyone else, our own sins, we have great cause for rejoicing. A psalmist writes in Psalm 40, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, Let's use those words the next time that we're talking about our sins and our redemption. He drew me up from the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my heart, my mouth, sorry, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. A psalmist declaring what it is that God has done for him. We might put it in a little bit different wording, but rejoicing in the redemption that God has provided for us. First Peter 1, Peter writes there in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You love him because of what he has done for you. He has taken you out of that miry bog and he has brought you to a sweet place of redemption. Did you hear some of the things that Carolyn read from Isaiah earlier in our service? Of all the ways that God loves you and delights in who you are, through redemption, all that God has given to you is great grounds for rejoicing. The controlling issue is not the style of rejoicing, but the grounds for rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord. The ultimate ground for our rejoicing cannot be in our circumstances. Because if it was, we wouldn't be able to rejoice always. But our delight must be in the Lord himself. Hear that. It is not how you rejoice, but that you rejoice. Your rejoicing does not have to mimic someone else. It doesn't have to look a particular way, but it ought to be centered in the gospel. God in the gospel gives us great cause for rejoicing, no matter what else might be happening in our life. And it doesn't mean that it's easy, but it means it's possible because we rejoice in the Lord. So the command given to rejoice twice, and what's in the middle of it, sandwiched in between these two commands, is this proximity, this relationship that we have in Christ himself. He doesn't say rejoice always. No matter what happens, you always have to be happy about it, Christian. Impossible and foolish out all times. Because everybody knows if you're walking around happy, slappy, in the midst of great difficulty, when you just got horrible news, everybody knows you're lying. (laughs) So tell the truth. Tell the truth. This is the worst thing I've ever gone through. And I can trust in the Lord who is with me. And I know I'm secure in him, but this is horrible. I hear rejoicing. I hear rejoicing that that person knows for sure we are in Christ, and that's right now all I might have to hang on to. But I am grateful to all that God has done for me in redeeming me. He is my Savior. Look at James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Rejoice, count it all joy, when you meet trials of various kinds. He can say that because the grounds of rejoicing is in God and in the work he's doing in you, producing steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All of the circumstances you are facing are not for naught. They're not for any, nothing. They're for a purpose. Because the almighty God, the one that you have come to know in redemption, is using them to continue to complete you. You were saved, but in your salvation, you weren't made perfect instantly. There's still growth that needs to happen, and that will happen until we see him face to face. So rejoice, even when difficulties come, knowing that they come from one who loves you and has redeemed you, knowing that they serve an ultimate purpose that is far greater than what you're currently going through, and knowing that you are facing them not alone. You're facing them in Christ. You have been united to him, and he doesn't leave you when difficulties come. He himself entered into difficulties, that he might know exactly what you're facing in the midst of each and every difficulty you encounter. 
Obedience to this command to rejoice is only possible because the ground of rejoicing is unchanging. I can rejoice always because God is consistent, because he is always present, and he will never leave me. We rejoice in the gospel message again and again, multiple times a day if we can. In our remembering the gospel, we first recall that we are sinners, sinners by birth, sinners by choice, and on our own, naturally, we love our sin. We only knew sin until Jesus, we didn't know sin until Jesus saved us. We didn't know we were sinners until we needed redemption and we needed, knew we needed a savior. So we rejoice in the Lord because on our own, we are destined for destruction. Not only ought we to rejoice in the Lord, but rejoice in the grace of God shown to us over and over again that allows us to not be consumed by our sins. D.A. Carson says, happy is the Christian who sees in every sin a monster that could easily snare him eternally were it not for the grace of God. Happy is the Christian who sees in every sin a monster that could easily snare him eternally were it not for the grace of God. What that does, Christian, is it continues to keep us humble. When we see sin rising up within us or sin in a brother or sister, that we see so quickly how we could be ensnared by that. And it brings us to rejoice in the Lord and the redemption he has given to us again and again. How should we rejoice? In the Lord. When should we rejoice? Always. Not dependent on circumstances, but we rejoice because we are in the Lord. We can rejoice in him because we are in him. Does this mean to rejoice in God, all that he is and all that he has done? Or does it mean that we rejoice while we are in him? The answer is yes to both. Because we are in Christ, because of all that God has done for us, and because we are currently in him, we are a part of his body. So we rejoice. Cecilia Bernhardt writes, it is a woe. That is for sure. One guy in the room has got it right. Cecilia Bernhardt writes, rejoicing in God's presence helps them and us to approach conflict in a state of mind that allows humility and grace to flourish rather than defensiveness and judgment. She's writing, alluding to the situation that was happening in the verses two and three of Philippians four. She says, rejoicing in God's presence Rejoice in the Lord always helps them, those two ladies and us, approach conflict in a state of mind that allows humility and grace to flourish rather than defensiveness and judgment. It's a constantly looking at our lives in light of the gospel. When we see our sin so big in front of our own eyes, it doesn't give us room to see our neighbor's sin so big in front of our own eyes. We lose sight of the microscope to put them under, to analyze everything they've ever done. When our sin is so quickly in front of our eyes, when we continually repent of all that we are doing, it keeps us from analyzing and hypervigilant focus on someone else. It's already hard enough to look through the little thing that you get with a microscope. Now imagine if something is impeding your view. It makes it even impossible to look at. And the same is true for us in relation to others. Jesus says this well when he says, get the log out of your own eye so that you might be able to see this before you look at the speck in someone else's eye. 
Christian, look at your own heart. Look at your own sin struggles. Repent regularly. Rejoice in the Lord and the gospel and in the redemption he has provided with you regularly. And that begins to help us look at our situation, circumstances around us without continuing to grow defensive and judgmental in our relationships with others or even in our relationship with the Lord. So continue to rejoice in the Lord. The next one is be gracious like Jesus. So not only the command to rejoice in the Lord, but verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Be gracious like Jesus. This one is a command, but it seems sort of strange because of the word that the ESV translators used. Who has ever used the word reasonableness? Nobody. What does it mean? I don't know. I had to look it up in other translations. Maybe you're like me. The King James doesn't help all that much because it uses the word moderation. Let your moderation be known to everyone. What does that mean? Well, thankfully, God in his kindness gives us the New American Standard (laughs) and the NIV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The New American Standard says a gentle spirit. Let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. The NIV, let your gentleness. The Holman Christian Standard says your graciousness, reasonableness. A Greek lexicon would define it as not insisting on every right or letter of law or custom, but yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. The same word that is used twice in the qualifications for an elder, that they are gentle. Let your graciousness be known to everyone, to every person, to all of those who are made in the image of God, just like you. Be gentle towards them. When we look at the first command, to rejoice in the Lord always, looking at our redemption and all that he has done for us in light of all of our sin that we fully recognize, it shapes our heart, doesn't it, to then look at the other person in a spirit that is gentle, not one that is fixating on every detail. The the words alone in the uh, lexicon definition that I read, yielding, not insisting on every letter of law or custom. Who comes to your mind when you think of it? Who comes to your mind in the Bible when you think of, I don't want to do this and ask for people's names out loud. Who comes to your mind in the Bible that's doing this? The Pharisees, right? Ones who insist on every single letter of the law being followed. Fixating. Putting other people to shame if they don't follow exactly how they follow. Oh, that's not gracious or gentle. Not fixating on every detail. Not putting other people and their words and their actions under the microscope where, frankly, none of us want to be. But this kind of hyper-analyzing fixation is anti-gospel in the way of the Pharisees. And Paul says to the church and the two ladies who just a few verses cannot, before cannot agree to be known for their graciousness, not their exactness. So may the same be true of us as a church. The conflict that happens between two people is troubling and intensely so. But to be able as the believer to look at your own heart and desire to be gracious towards others. Instead of seeing someone and running away or seeing someone and not being able to speak to them of only focusing on their faults. Nobody can, under, uh, can handle that kind of pressure or analyzing. So brother or sister, stop doing that to your spouse 
Would you have a relationship with your spouse that is one that is marked by graciousness, not by fixation on all of these things and areas in which they have failed you, but a spirit of graciousness? Why? Because you have been extended grace from the king of kings himself. How dare we all of a sudden turn after receiving the massive weight of redemption and all of our sins taken off of our shoulders to turn and fixate on one small area? Yeah, but pastor, you don't know. It's not really small. Because 30 years ago they did this and it has been building ever since and created a habit. It's not small. I'm sorry. In light of the 10,000s of sins you have committed against a holy God for which one merits you eternal damnation, it's infinitely small. Look at all that you've been given. So can't you turn and with eyes as big as saucers look graciously and like, what is it, the Grinch? His heart was three times too small and your heart enlarged towards your brother or sister, towards your spouse? towards your children, instead of exacting revenge or details. You've been extended grace to it by God, so extend it to others. James chapter 3, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The wisdom from above is that. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who exact details. No, by those who make peace. It refers to the exact opposite of a spirit of contention and self-seeking. It is only the gospel that allows us to look to all that God has done for us, to not be overly concerned about exactness and to trust once again in the grace of God. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and they're having some serious difficulties, and they've actually gone to court over it, taking one another to court, and they're suing one another. And he says already, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He says this incredible, gives us question right after that. Why not rather suffer wrong? Christian, why not rather suffer long with your spouse? Why not rather suffer long with one another? Why do we do this? Why be gracious? Why rejoice in the Lord always? We said rejoice in the Lord. But then this next one, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It just seems weird, right? Why why this one? Yeah, maybe it flows from Euodia and Syntyche and the problems they're having in verses 2 and 3. But notice the next phrase. It stands all by itself. In the Greek New Testament, it's surrounded by periods. It's its own phrase. It's not connected to either verse. The Lord is at hand. The word is the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Proximity? Like he's close to me? Yes. You are in Christ. The Lord is right there with you. You are in him. Yes, he's near proximity. Near temporally? Yes, he is coming soon. The Lord is near. In, uh, probably in every way you can imagine, the Lord is near to you, Christian. That is why. 
Because what's surrounding you is a spirit of graciousness all around you that has marked you. You are called a Christian because of the redemption that has been offered to you. It seems to be denying our own name to not be gentle and gracious towards others. The Lord is at hand. He is near you. The nearness of the Lord, either in spirit or in his return, shows us his gentleness and gives us great cause for rejoicing. He had every ability to save us and leave us, but he is near to you. He remains a man forever. He is near to us in our humanness. He is coming soon. He is not far off. He is close to you. So be gracious. Be gracious like Jesus. And thirdly, take your anxieties to God. Pray without limitation. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. So take your anxieties to God. It says in verse six, do not be anxious about anything. Already some of you are growing anxious. Don't be anxious about everything, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. First Peter chapter five, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's the proximity of the Lord for the psalmist that whenever he's walking through even the valley of the shadow of death, he is not afraid because the Lord is with him. His anxieties are not overwhelming because of the proximity of the Lord. Genesis chapter 26, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. How many times in the scriptures do we see that? Fear not, I am with you. The proximity of the Lord removes anxiety. The proximity of the Lord, you can go boldly before the Lord with your anxieties, with all of your prayers. Of prayers, a word generally given, but then also the word supplication, this word of intense pleading to the Lord marked by thanksgiving. So in this attitude of thanksgiving, being able to go to the Lord, thanking him for all that he has done, pleading specifically for what you desire him to do, but in all of that, you are communicating with the God of the universe. And in all of that communication, you are showing and evidencing that he is near to you. He hears you. He wants to communicate with you. He longs for you to cast all of these things on him. The result of all this going to God, remembering he is present with you and living towards others as Jesus has lived for you, is that God's peace and protection will be with you. It seems like an if-then statement. If you rejoice in the Lord, if you are gracious to others, if you take all your anxieties to God, then the proximity of the Lord will bring you peace and protection. There are so many reasons for us to have worry and anxieties. Part of our worry today is because we are so globally connected that we know of every storm, every gunshot, every suicide bomb, every murder or terrorist in the world. Our global connectivity has driven our anxieties through the roof. The way to be anxious about nothing is not to stop watching the news, is not to bury your head in the sand, but is to be prayerful about everything. 
One author writes, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Maybe you are here this morning and you struggle with lots of anxiety, worry, panic attacks. You are skeptical as to how simplistic this might seem. I just pray. I just take all of these worries before the Lord. I, I thank him for what he has done. I, I remember the gospel. I, I see the proximity and the closeness of the Lord, and you're telling me that's going to give me peace and protection in the midst of all of my anxiety and worry. You're skeptical. And maybe you have worked hard, spent a lot of time and money working on anxiety. You've read on the subject. You have found some relief, and maybe for some of you, nothing has worked yet. And I'm not saying in any way to throw out everything you have ever heard or anything that you are doing now to help you, but I am saying that God promises that he is always with you, that he is near to you. The God of the universe who made you and knew knows every way in which your heart beats and in which you are caused to concern. He is not far or aloof from you. So go to him with everything on your chest. Speak to him about every concern or worry. Find every opportunity to thank him when you see answers to prayer or you experience kindness from his hand. Believe God's word. Take him at his word and see how God works in you as you trust and obey him. One writer, a counselor, Ed Welch, says this in regards to anxiety. He says, the last 30 years of my life have been spent shortening the time lag between the appearance of anxiety and the onset of prayer. The last 30 years of my life has been sent shortening the time lag. That gap has gone from two days down to one and then down to an hour. Left to myself, I spin out doomsday scenarios, hoping, hoping that all my frenetic mind will stumble into some answers. I can resonate with this. But when I go to my heavenly father, and tell him all my worries, when I remember his words to me in ever-present help and trouble, and when I thank him for his care, the peace of Christ does begin to rule my heart and mind. It's a miracle that still takes me by surprise. Christian, all too often, we can be overwhelmed with all we think that God is requiring of us today. We don't see that these are meant to be taken in bite-sized pieces for the rest of your days. How is it that we are going to grow in Christ in the next 365 days that make up 2024? Don't look at it and say, I'm a failure if I don't make day one. You got 365. It's a leap year. You got 365 more. You've been given an extra day of grace next year. Don't bite it all off in one day. Don't think I have to become super Christian by February 1st or by a certain day. Look at Ed Welch writing, the last 30 years of my life have been working towards this one goal. Granted, there's many others, I'm sure. Granted, towards this one goal of shortening the time lag between when difficulty arrives, when my anxiety is peaked, and before I go to God in prayer. What a goal for this year. What a goal for a lifetime to be able to see the miracle that happens when we go to him, when we submit to his word and obey. And verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The commands and the promises, 
The proximity of the Lord brings peace and protection that we can't understand. Now, I love that. Now, how does it come? Can you, can you give me the formula? We can't. We don't know exactly how God is going to work this miracle in your life. But what we do know is that God has shown himself to be faithful for thousands of years, has never been found to not be anything but faithful. That God promises his peace will be overwhelming to you and completely un, uh, unable to fully understand how God works. And yet he does. And for those of you who have taken God at his word and have found your anxiety and all your worries and troubles, being able to be melted away by the presence of the Lord with you can stand and testify of what God has done over and over again. Often it's by looking back and seeing the difficulties that came, your heart in response to prayer and the difficulty didn't lift right away, did it? But all of a sudden, years later, being able to see how God has grown you, how God has continued to work in incredible ways through the miracle of his grace, how he soothes our anxiety, how he protects our hearts and minds. He provides peace and he protects. I thought it was interesting as Paul's writing here, he's in prison in Rome. And the word that he gives here, this guard your heart. Now, Paul is surrounded by guards. Guards are, who are keeping him in prison or under house arrest, keeping him in a certain place, not allowing him to go somewhere else. But it's not Almighty God who is guarding his heart and his mind to keep him his. That God is actively working as a castle and as guards to guard your heart and your mind from growing bitter, from growing cold, from allowing relationships to continue to be broken and not taken care of, but to see the peace that God provides to you by recognition of his presence and by you taking all these things to him in prayer. God desires to bring about not just peace in the sense of comfy feelings, but wholeness, a shalom, a flourishing, a rest. So may we as God's people continue to go to the Lord with everything who will guard our hearts and our minds. It is future, and yet it is sure. He will do this. God is one to be trusted, both, you, both your heart and your mind. Your heart needs to be guarded, and so does your mind. We regularly think of our mind because that's where we think of things. We know what we think of. We know the things that are not true and helpful, but it is from our heart that all of those thoughts flow, and both need to be reformed. Both need to be guarded as we recognize his presence with us in the midst of and through all the circumstances that we face or that will face us. So Christian, as we end this year and move into a new year tomorrow, may we remember that God is near to us, that he is always with us, that he knows all that you need and has a purpose in everything that comes your way. So trust in him. Go to him. Take confidence in his presence with you always. And let these truths bring you wholeness and make you gracious in your relationships with God and in your relationships with those around you. May God in his kindness allow 2024 to be a year of spiritual growth for us 
that has yet to be seen in our life. For some of you, that means maybe for the very first time you come to faith. And for others of you, it means growing in a way that you have not thought you could have grown spiritually. Areas of sin you didn't think were possible to see victory in. That our trust in God and in His Word and submitting to it might bring about spiritual growth that we didn't know was possible or that we haven't seen in a long time or ever. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word this morning and to our lives as we desire to know and love him in the year to come. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we can come this morning and look at a text like this and not be overwhelmed, even though of all these imperatives, because we know that you are with us. We know that where we fail, you have always been faithful and persevered. You have always done what is right and what could not be done by us. And in your kindness, you have redeemed us, those who are unworthy, those who desired nothing but our sins. We didn't know what we needed. And Father, we are grateful for your grace. We ask that you continue to let us stand in in awe of who you are and all that you have done for us. Be reminded quickly and regularly of our own sin and the redemption we have been given, that that might change the way in which we come to you, how frequently we come to you, how we deal with anxieties and difficulties, how we trust in you, and how we are gracious with one another. We ask your blessing on these things and on the singing as we continue to worship you together as a church this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.